are recording. Welcome back to another episode of Mostly Ghostly with Matt Fisher and Ray Booten. How you doing over there, Ray? Not bad. Not bad at all. The sun's shining bright. The winds died down. The last couple days has been kind of dreary. We've had a lot of rain and, and sad clouds floating around. But everything seems to be A-OK today. A little nip in the air, but not a big deal, you know? How's over? How's your area? You get the rain? You get the big pouring rain yesterday? Got the pouring rain yesterday. Right now we got sunshine and we got some nasty wind blowing. Uh, yeah, I talked to Alex that was up in Andover yesterday. That's where he lives. And he was like, it was like fine hair and it was like pouring rain there. Then we got it like an hour, hour and a half later. We got it. But, you know, if we were living in the in the old 1400s with rain like that, we'd think the uh, Native American Indian gods were angry at us. <laughs> They'd be crying on us. So, without uh, going any further into it today, we kind of have a... Uh, this one, this one, a chunk, a big chunk of area to talk about today. The Greater Boston area to keep with our haunted Massachusetts theme. You know, um, we're taking you know some stories from the haunted Massachusetts book from Sheree Revey. So anybody who uh, we're only doing certain stories, so we want to give props to her and anybody who's um, likes these stories that wants to dive a little deeper themselves. You know, pick up the book. I believe it's on Amazon and eBay and all that good stuff. Maybe even a Barnes and Noble if they ever open up again. Well, you can go there and get it. I think Barnes and Noble's the only book chain really still around. You know, everything else is Borders has been killed. Walden Books has been killed. A lot of them have all been killed off. Even some Barnes and Nobles are uh, disappearing. But um, I'll jump into. Uh, I'll jump into the episode, some of the episode, and we'll start our first story of the evening. It's called The Colonial Inn. Hold on to your butt. The original section of the Colonial Inn at 48 Monument Square in Concord was built in 1716 by a physician and soldier, Captain John Minot. Uh, two 19th century buildings were added to the Minot house in the late 1800s and another sizable addition was added in the 16 in the 60s and the 70s not surprisingly it was during that uh, the most recent renovation period that the bedside ghost first appeared as ghosts often do during reconstruction of their former romping grounds which i've often heard a lot when you do uh when you do changes to your house that's when most likely you'll see a lot of uh occurrences because the ghosts that live there don't like the uh, change-up. Oh, they don't like the change-up. They can also be disturbing the energy in that area. That upsets them. Truth. That's probably why when people say they see ghosts move through walls and stuff, you think that might be because there wasn't a wall there in their day? Uh, yeah, different layout. There was no wall there, so they move right through there. They don't really see or relate to what the changes are, the restructuring. Yeah. Uh, a newlywed couple was given room 24, my favorite number, side fact, on the second floor uh, in 1966. Uh, the large, lovely room is in the old part of the building, the Minot House. Uh, 
uh, and overlooks historic Monument Square. Though she didn't mention it to be the innkeeper at the time of her departure, the young bride sent a letter to the inn several weeks after their visit describing an interesting encounter she had during her stay. And that encounter goes a little something like this. I have always prided myself on being a fairly sane individual, but on the night of June 14th, I begin to have my doubts. On that night, I saw a ghost in your inn. The next morning, I felt too foolish to mention it to the management, so my husband and I continued on our honeymoon. I wondered whether or not any sightings of a ghost had been reported, or if any history of one was involved in the history of that inn. The incident sounds very melodramatic. I was awakened in the middle of the night by a presence in the room, a feeling that some unknown being was in the midst. As I opened my eyes, I saw a grayish figure at the side of my bed. To the left, about four feet away, it was not a distinct person, but a shadowy mass in the shape of a standing figure. It remained still for a moment and then slowly floated to the foot of the bed in front of the fireplace. After pausing a few seconds, the apparition slowly melted away. It was a terrifying experience. I was so frightened I could not scream. I was frozen to the spot. For the remainder of the night, I could not fall asleep. I was, sp I was spent lying in the conjure of logical explanation of the apparition. It was not in reflection of the moon, as the curtains were completely closed. Upon relating the incident to my husband, he said the ghost was included in the price of the room. He's a comedian. <coughs> uh, the innkeeper responded to the letter with a polite and jovial reply, suggesting that perhaps the ghost was that of one of the many famous people who had stayed at the inn in the last couple hundred years, including Ralph Waldo Emerson and Franklin D. Rosenervelt. Woo! Or perhaps it was Doc Minot, still making his bedside rounds. Another possibility was Henry David Thoreau, whose family lived in the original Minot home. Today, Jurgen Demish is the lucky proprietor. According to the inn's website, uh, at com. Big props, big, uh, big push for him. If you like a haunted room at the inn, just ask for room 24. As far as they know, the other rooms are ghost-free. Um, you often hear, I, you know, there's been billions of stories of people waking up, either in houses or hotels and inns and such like that, where ghosts are at the foot of their bed, or they're watching them, you know what I mean? That's kind of a common occurrence. What do you think they? What do you think that's all about? You think they're just interested in the subject, or you think what they? What do you? What do you think that is? I think that when you're going into that uh, sleep state, uh, you're open, mm -hmm. and uh, that can draw them there. I'd also be curious as to what happened in the past in that room to make it uh, so that a ghost would appear there, or if it's multiple ghosts, if there's some sort of portal in the room, what occurred there at one time to open it up. Yeah. But uh, going into that sleep state when you're, the barriers and the walls in your mind are starting to slip away and your mind is open up, that's a time when you are very susceptible to seeing something. Uh, what do you think about sleep paralysis? I hear a lot of stuff like that too. And I can, I can, I can, uh, I can attest the two times in my life when I felt I've had it, where I woke up, one I was camping once, and one time I was in bed, and I remember getting it. It felt 
like I was cold, like a little bit held down, but it was like a cold where you were so, for, you ever be so cold that you couldn't move? You ever get that feel? Uh, no. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, it was like that where it was just like, I remember when I was camping, I woke up and it was cold and I was like, in, I was like teenage years and it was like, I was like shook it. Like I was shaking, but I couldn't move. Like I couldn't move my arms away from my side. I couldn't get up. I just kind of had to lay there and deal with it. And I had the same kind of occurrence in bed, um, you know, years later and I, I've often wondered if that's what sleep paralysis was. I know people talk about seeing weird things. We never got into the discussion of um, when I was down the Cape Cod Canal and I thought I'd seen some alien behavior. I don't think we've talked about that, at least, because I, I think I wanted to have my cousin on the show to talk about it, who was there as well. But that, I'm pretty sure that's where I had that, was that when I was camping that time, when, I, when that other strange stuff occurred. Um, but it very likely could have been another camping situation, but I, I remember it was camping definitely, but it was just, it was like a frozen in just, I couldn't move. Like it was the weirdest thing because it was kind of like being, I guess like at the time I, I didn't know, I, I haven't heard any of the stories about sleep paralysis where people feel like they're being held down, but like that is kind of what it was like. I mean, I was cold, um, for sure. Even though I was all blanketed up and sleeping bagged up and all that, but it was still like a weird. I was chilly. I was being held down. I had shakes, um, and I always wondered what that was. Now, which one came first, uh, when you were camping or when you were in the bed? Camping. Ah, so if you're tying the alien thing, that was your first visit. The second visit was when you were in bed. You think so? Uh, that would fit with the uh, the stories uh, of encounters, yeah. Now, do you all, like, when, when, when people have visits like that, do you think that they're more, uh, they're more likely to see things? Because I feel like I see things all the time in the sky. Like, all the time. You know, at least a couple times a year, I feel like I'll look up and I'll see something that probably shouldn't be there type deal. I think once your mind is open to it, you're, you're likely to see it. Yeah. Um, I also think that once, let's say you have been, once there has been an initial contact, there are repeated ones. Yeah. You just may not remember any others. That's true. And you take a dream, like people never remember their dreams. I wonder if that, uh, if there's any tie into this, to the dreams that they, people have. You know how when you get older, you don't remember, you don't have dreams. Or you just don't remember them when you wake up completely. But like when you're younger, I guess, you remember that you had them, but you just can't remember the details. I wonder if that that goes into anything like that, in the type of visitation. Uh, the dreams, I don't know. I still have them. Okay. And I still remember them. Yeah. Um, but if you're looking at the dreams, you're looking at, a, you're looking at an energy and maybe a quantum level, and you're looking at a communication there. Yeah, there's a possibility that uh, curse in your dreams, both with the spirit and the alien. Hmm. It's interesting. We got to do that episode on aliens and demons soon. That's very interesting stuff. Oh, yeah. All right. Next story up. The Storm Breeder. Peter Ruggs lived on Middle Street in Boston with his wife and young daughter. There was nothing outstanding about the man except his occasional temper tantrums. 
That's not, that's very common too. I've, I know plenty of people that have t- temper tantrums all the time. He was famous for his sudden, unpredictable outbursts, and his family and friends were sure it would get him in trouble one day. Uh, if it's, I'm surprised they don't call that possession. You know what I mean? And get him exercised. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the the inevi- the inevitable day came in the fall of 1770. Rugs and his daughter, his young daughter, his faithful little sidekick visited Concord by horse and carriage. After Ruggs had taken care of business, they stopped at a tavern owned by Ruggs' longtime friend for a drink before heading back home towards Boston. The skies soon turned dark gray, and the wind picked up, it was like yesterday, and violent thunderstorms was approaching, and the tavern owner insisted that Ruggs and his daughter stay the night rather than risk the trip home in such inclement weather. But nobody should insist that Ruggs do anything, not if they knew the man. Ruggs' defiant words to the innkeeper as he hoisted his daughter onto the rain-drenched carriage seat became a self-fulfilling prophecy. He's a very stubborn man that got him in trouble, I think, is coming. Uh, Let the storm increase, he says. I will see home tonight in spite of it, or may I never see home. Yeah, he cursed himself there. And uh, and with that, he was off, never to be seen in his mortal form again. Several nights later, while Ruggs' neighbors were searching by lantern light for the man and child, heavy hooves were heard fast approaching the lane on which Rugg lived. They heard Rugg order his large black horse to stop as he looked toward his house, but the beast never slowed. Witnesses said the man in the reins looked wet and weary, and the soaking child at his side clung desperately to his arm. As the apparition passed, the rain fell more heavily, in fact. Sighting of Rugg's ghost, and there were many, were followed by violent thunderstorms so often that he became known as the Storm Breeder. Apparitions of a man and child in their swift horse-driven carriage were reported nearly 150 years from as far as way as Hartford, Connecticut, Providence, Rhode Island, and the New Hampshire Hills. Always the ghostly ensemble was surrounded with a strange purplish glow, and always the distraught father and child appeared dazed and desperate. One man from Connecticut said uh, Rug spoke to him before vanishing into thin air. He said, I have lost the road to Boston. My name is Peter Rugg. Indeed, he was way off course, but he hasn't been seen in a very long time. Now can only hope that he and his daughter finally found their way to the other side, where his wife, who died of a broken heart within a year of their disappearance, was waiting with open arms. Um, do you think that the energy of one, one, ran, like one random person's ghost could bring on thunderstorms? I tend to think that uh, the storms themselves gave energy to the spirits at the time when they were passing, which keeps them going. And do you think the daughter would still be clinging by his side, knowing that his stubbornness is why she's dead? That might be, or just might be how he projects it. She might, the daughter, I think, might have moved on. Mm. But then again, if she was young enough and it was trauma, she's holding on to the only thing she knew or would think we'd keep her safe. Do you think that, that that apparition of her might not, when you say it might not be her, do you think that that could almost be like a demon or something left to torment him? Uh, it might be a projection of his guilt. It might be something that he's carrying with him and it's seen as the daughter. Hmm. 
craziness. Uh, the purple glow. What, what's your take on the glows, the multicolors of the glows of people? Just their aura? Or what do you think? Um, I would tend to go with the aura, what yeah. they're carrying, though purple is usually peaceful, so that might not work there. Yeah. Um, I think it, it could just be, since it's in a storm, it could just be the change in the electrical field between his presence and the storm, ionization, a whole variety of things happening in the storm that produces the uh, color purple. And that's not the movie with Oprah Winfrey, the color purple, right? Uh, no, no, that's not the same one. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, yeah, I mean, that's sad about the wife, too. You know, that's a common thing where the, the wife died of a broken heart. You hear that a lot with older couples where they'll, um, you know, they'll be together for 80 years and then one of them will pass away and then like a week later or whatever. Um, the other one passes because of just the the, the, the the impact of losing the other one, you know. It's kind of like they need each other to live, like the energy of each other, you know what I mean? Yeah, I think that's uh, the energy and the will. Yeah. Those two combined at that point, uh, I know of a couple where that did happen. I think that that plays a big part in it. Mm -hmm. With him being like... Uh being seen from all the way from like Hartford, Connecticut, Providence, Rhode Island into New Hampshire Hills, you think it would travel that far? Or, or what do you think on that? I think some of that is just a legend traveling that far when people yeah. see things. Uh, the possibility of him traveling a along uh, those routes, I don't know. I gotta leave that one open. I tend to think more of that the legend of him and the story spread to a certain area then later on they saw him truth yeah all right our next story up is boston light and the ghost walk uh, boston light is the oldest lighthouse in america originally built in 1716 on little brewster island at the entrance of boston harbor it's no surprise that a number of legends are associated with such a historic landmark after all it is borne witness to countless shipwrecks near the island as well as the drownings of its first two keepers shortly after taking their assignment. Many believe that Boston Light is haunted and the, with good reason. Apparitions have been seen drifting through the lantern room. Feline mascots hiss at unseen presences. Unexplained footsteps are sometimes heard and cold spots have been widely reported. Uh, I wonder if that's what I felt when I was, when I, like, being... Hello? When I get, hello? Can you hear me? Yep, I'm here. Okay. Yeah. I was thinking when you chills, the chills that you get, you know, when people are in somewhere haunted and they get that chill, you know, the cold spot, if, if, if that's just, you know, an energy or if something's passing through you type deal. Uh, quite often um, it's believed to be something passing through you. Mm -hmm. Also... Many in spirit need energy to manifest, and they may be draining yours, and you feel that uh, loss of energy as cold. Yeah. So if you're in contact with a spirit, uh, for most people, um, they start feeling cold. Myself, I start feeling warm. Mm. I don't know. For me, it's the opposite. I could have a coat on, and I'll feel warm enough to want to take a coat or a sweater off. Uh, whereas most people feel cold. But, yeah, the common thing is the energy drain is felt as cold. Yeah. 
Um, several miles east of Little Brewster Island, there is a peculiar area at, of the ocean the locals call Ghost Walk. Uh, here there, there seem to be some sort of atmospheric anima- animality that prevents sound from entering the area. Even the enormous bell of Boston Light cannot be heard in the Ghost Walk. The phenomena received so much hype in the late 1800s that a team of students from Massachusetts Institute of Technology was dispatched to Little Brewster Island for an entire summer to experiment um, with, with uh, foghorn signals in an attempt to reach the area in question. No signal, not even with the largest horn or siren, was able to penetrate the mysterious sound barrier. It remains unexplained to this day. What's your thoughts on that? Uh, that might be something similar to a portal. Kind of, mm-hmm. uh, we've talked about time, uh, like time warps or, and different things, but that is basically an area where a bridge between two worlds, and in this case sound, is not, is not penetrating. It's being absorbed. Sound also is a form of energy. Whatever is in the area could be just sucking all that in, and it never reaches the people. But it's on a different dimensional level where the sound is lost. What do you think would cause a whole, a whole time warp or like a whole different, like a dimension, like a different dimension in our dimension type situation like that? Uh, it's commonly referred to as a portal. Yeah, uh, yeah. Most people think the portals go one way. They can go both ways. And it's really a fluctuation in the energy in an area that opens up like a rift or a break between a, a dimension area. And unless it's purposely closed, it tends to stay open. Mm-hmm. Um, they can be closed if you know how to do it, uh, obviously. But, yeah, it's it can be a major energy shift that it caused it. It can be a major event. And people actually go out, perform ceremonies to open portals, mm-hmm. not knowing what they're doing and what they're getting into. Um. If people that don't know what they're doing, you think that portal they open could have allow other things to come through? It could, it could definitely allow other things to pass through. And also people who are not aware of what's going on can actually step into it and they disappear. Yikes. Because they, they're not in this dimension anymore. Whatever is in that other dimension or world can make their way into this one. There are some uh, naturally occurring ones, but like I said, people can create them. And that's a dangerous thing to do. I know the Bridgewater Triangle has had a lot of gone missing stories of people that have gone into the woods and just have never been seen again. And I know other places, you know, have had that situation too where pe- people just randomly disappear forever. You think it, they, they fall into a portal? Um, I think they could have passed through when I'm... To me, it's, you know. it's kind of a very silly analogy. But if you just take a large piece of paper and all you have to do is, like, put a slice in it, um, and you can stick your hand through. Mm. Well, it stays open until someone tapes it up, so to speak, closes it. But something can also reach through from the other side. The veil or the barrier between this dimension and other dimensions uh, is very, very thin and a lot easier to open up, either someone doing it uh, with a purpose or accidentally, a lot easier to open up than we realize. That's a scary thought. The um, now these other dimensions could it be anything you think? Like, do you think you could be pulled into one where you're just all of a sudden underwater, or do you think it would be another 
plat like another environment that you could live in? Uh, possibly live in, though, in what form, I don't know. Yeah. Um, you also have the idea that there is an idea that we have multiple lives going at once, and each time we make a decision, we step into a different life. These are different quantum theories and other areas of science where um, they recognize the other dimensions. There was one scientist about 20 years ago said there were originally something like 18 that, we, that got compressed down to three or four, there's a lot out there, but with so many people, whether it is um, culturally or even scientific, admitting to other dimensions, uh, there has to be something there. Mm. And these people's experiences, whether you want to call it portal or doorway to another dimension, is exactly what they're stepping into and opening up. And it's, well, there is a, Kind of, kind of showed the weirdness of it is that there was a an experiment done years ago with super colliders, and they use super colliders consistently, and they test subatomic particles that way by crashing them together, together yeah. and they always get a different pattern afterwards. Someone got the idea that oh, we're going to do it in France and the U.S. at the same time, so they did it at the same time. When you do it at the same time, even though it's different parts of the world, is the only time you get the same pattern hmm. of smashing these subatomic particles together. So there's a connectedness. There's something at that level that can connect and come together, which also means there's something on our level that potentially can bridge into that other dimension or other place. Hmm. In your travels, have you ever talked to anybody or you, you, you yourself felt you, felt you went into a different dimension? Uh, if you eliminate dreams? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, let's see. No, weird experiences, but I, I wouldn't say outright, no. Well, with the dreams, uh, that other dimension, was it, what, what, can you explain, like, what was the environment you were in? Was it like regular life here, or was it different? Uh, regular with with a twist. Yeah. Um, what I will say one time, um, I was it was time one time I was meditating, mm -hmm. and during the meditation, I was asking one of my spirit guides, and this was early on. I was very cocky. Mm -hmm. I was asking one of my spirit guides to show me, and I kept on saying, "Show me, show me, show me." And suddenly it got shown something. It was like being on the edge of a, of a cliff with oh, just horror beyond it. I mean, it was crazy. I felt like I was going to fall. I felt like I was suddenly pulled back, grabbed by one arm. Hmm. When that happened, I woke up from the meditation. I was upset. Uh, it was vivid in my mind still. I went into the bathroom, did the old splash of the water on the, star, on the face, yeah. looked up, looked at my arm because I had, had a T-shirt on. There was a handprint on my arm, like it had been grabbed. Can you explain what was that, that horror that was off in the distance, what it was? Was it creatures or was it just a bleak, you know what I mean? What do, you, do you remember what you've seen? I would say bleak with some things in it I don't care to remember. Yeah, it's scary. <laughs> was it Lovecraftian? 
hints of it, yeah. Speaking of Lovecraftian, we'll jump into our next story. Uh, The Dover Demon. Uh, What has big orange eyes, disproportionately disproportionately large head and extremities, and a frail, spinely body? Answer, a famous cryptozoological cryptozoological critter known as the Dover Demon, uh, the Boston area's most famous paranormal entity. To this day, nobody knows who or what it was or where it came from, but its encounter with three Dover residents in 1977 quickly propelled it into legendary status. The name Dover Demon is somewhat of a misnomer because this being never showed any propensity whatsoever toward evil of any kind. Quite the contrary. It was described as being frozen like a deer in headlights scurrying away towards a gully, sitting on, hint, uh, on its hind end by the side of the road and creeping skittishly along the stone wall. Hardly like any demon I've ever heard of, but Dover Demon does have a nice catchy ring to it. It's probably just the way it looked that they called it a demon, you know? Yep. And it's obviously more memorable than, say, the Dover Deer. Um, the first the first encounter with the so-called demon occurred on April 21st, was that, yes, 1977. I think of the, the anniversary of that was uh, yesterday, at, um, at 10.30 p.m. Bill Bartlett was driving down Farm Street with two of his 17-year-old friends when he spotted a small creature creeping along the wall of stones. It stopped and looked right into the car's headlights with the large eyes that looked like two orange marbles. Uh, Bartlett didn't slow the vehicle for a better look, probably because his mind was so focused on trying to digest what he had just seen. Uh, and it just, uh, it, it couldn't process any more instructions. But when Bartlett told his friends he had just seen something bizarre, they persuaded him to turn around and go back. The other two had been engaged in deep conversation and hadn't noticed the creature. Unfortunately, the little whatchamacallit was gone when they returned. A shaken young man dropped his, dropped his friends off and went home to draw a picture of what else, uh, what he had seen. A picture that would be circulated and reproduced worldwide over the years since his encounter. The creature's head was the size and shape of a watermelon and had no discernible features except the prominent glowing eyes. The body was disproportionately small compared to the head and extremities. Four foot tall being was naked and its skin appeared rough in texture. It crept along the wall like a monkey in an upright stance, alternating the walking on on all fours. Uh, A couple hours after Bartlett's sighting in the wee hours of April 22nd, today, anniversary, a 15-year-old boy was walking home from his girlfriend's house, and he was at the intersection of Miller Hill Road and Farm Street when he saw a small figure approaching him that looked human. He called out to it, thinking... Of any, uh, he could, he called out to it, thinking it might be a particular friend because he couldn't think of anyone else who would be walking along that quiet stretch of road at such a late hour. But it didn't answer. It just stopped where it was and stared back at him, as if sizing him up. When the boy took his next step toward it, the skittish little creature dashed to the gully nearby. The boy followed boldly from a distance, 
and found the wee fellow hugging a tree on the other side of the brook, where he was able to get a better view of it, but his courage was short-lived. He didn't know what the thing's intention was. Would it pounce across the brook at him? He didn't have to ask himself twice. With a sudden turn, he raced back to the road and hitched a ride the rest of the way home. His description matched Bartlett's to a T, even though the two had not known of each other's experiences. But Bartlett did tell his friend, Will Tainter, about the incident the next night. Tainter was driving a friend home when the girl claimed to see a small ape-like creature in the car's headlights on Spring, uh, Springdale Avenue. She allegedly knew nothing about Bartlett and Tainter's conversation regarding the mysterious being, but her report matched the earlier sightings with the exception of eye color. Um, she swore that what she saw had green luminous eyes, where the young men had seen orange eyes, a minor detail considering all of the other similarities among the three stories. But what would be the last time... Uh, but that would be the last time the Dover demon was ever seen. Paranormal investigators quickly converged on the area. It's not every day that an exotic new creature is discovered. They found the witnesses all to be credible citizens with no reason to have fabricated their stories. In fact, the three youths were press shy and had only, only told family and friends about their disturbing encounters. The investigators ruled out several theories posed by the most skeptical local residents. It definitely wasn't a goat or a colt or a newborn moose, as some had suggested, but it had apparently meet the criteria of a cryptozoological being, because no respectable source on cryptozoology would even think of leaving uh, the Dover demon out today. We may never find out what it was, and that's okay. My mother once said that it's always better to leave something in the imagination. Um, I don't know. With all that ape-like thing, I think it could have made maybe a def like a monkey with no fur. Maybe somebody got one for uh, got one for uh, a pet a chimpanzee and it got loose or something. What's your opinion? Uh, it could be. It could be uh, a pet. I'd be curious to see if previous to that time there was anything that escaped from the zoo. Mm -hmm. Of course, they wouldn't be too uh, anxious to let it out, but to find out uh, whether something escaped. I tend to go with, um, yeah, I like the maybe the a baboon or the chimpanzee, That's that sort of thing. It's going to be distorted since the um, sightings are at night. And it takes someone by surprise. The imagination clicks in right away. Yeah. And since it did go, it stopped after a certain period of time. Um, that's also a little bit suspicious to me. Yeah, it was only kind of over a three-day period where these things were. It was seen. Um, I feel like whatever it is is probably dead. That's probably why they haven't. You know, I feel like even if you've seen like an emancipated, on the verge of death animal like maybe a chimpanzee that would be super thin maybe lost its fur um i think that would that would be the that would be it and as far as the eyes go that could be anything from a reflection of light in their eyes to maybe the moon gleam in their eyes you know you never know but i feel i don't, I don't buy the story that i don't buy the story that 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 the dude driving her didn't tell her that story that the friend told her last night because i know that i would I'd be telling, if I heard that story, I'd be telling, well, the podcast, first of all, but everybody that would listen, you know what I mean? 
Oh yeah, I, I know. I agree with that. I agree with the. Uh, I mean, if you've ever been around animals at night when uh, the uh, light hits their eyes and the way they they can glow, I definitely think uh, it's very animal like. The uh, side story: the other night we had a weird occurrence outside of the house. I leave for my job. Uh, I gotta be. I have an overnight job, so I work. I work at midnight to like seven in the morning for those. Those who care out there, which is nobody. Um, and I usually leave the house around 11.45, 11.50. And um, when I went outside, we got, a, we got a camera outside of our house first. So we catch the Amazon guys spitting on our packages and people stealing them. And, um, you know, in the video, you can see me leave. I go out to the car. I turn on the car. Um, my headlights come on. And it's... It, it, it kind of, it lights up the front yard a little bit, and uh, you see me pull off, and then again on the camera at exactly midnight, um, it appears that headlights are in my spot, turn on, and the, the light goes across the yard again, but then they shut off, and you ne- and you can see you never see anything leave the leave the space or enter the space through the video. It was very weird. You have any take on that? Uh, well, if you go back to the camping, the cold, the sleep, the cold, and now the lights showing up. Well, they, I, wasn't, I don't know. They, they they might have your address there. Oh no! They got Google. The um, <laughs> I wasn't here though. You think did still show up even with me not being here? Uh, yeah, just checking in, checking the place out. Damn, you've heard. I mean, I've told you different. Stories, you know, you were here when Katrina was talking about seeing the face peeking through the door and stuff like that. Uh, we hear noises and stuff, so I wouldn't be surprised if something wild, you know, was going down. Did I uh, did I ever tell you the the, the when I was re- when we were reading this story, my brother actually had a weird occurrence that we we considered to be a pukawaji. Are you familiar with pukawajis? Yes. The um, that's a creepy. St- those are creepy in themselves. I want to do a story on that eventually. How they lure people into the woods, and they used to lure pe- in, in the triangle. They were big, and they would lure people off of this cliff to their death. But my brother told me that he used to hang out down the down the street and um, with his buddies. And I remember he told me this story where he was coming, he was come riding his bike home, and. You know, you know how when it's it's dark out and there's a street and there's the, the there's street lights and then there's like certain trees that hang. You'll know how there'll be certain parts of the road that are just really dark, right? Yes. So he's cruising down the road and he's not really paying attention and he passes. You know, he's in the middle of the road and he passed um, this dark area and he looks and he just happened to like look off to the side and he said there was this like little like two three feet tall weird creature standing there and he he's he like double took it and then he, he like pedaled to get away from it because he was like didn't know what the fuck it was and then he said he stopped maybe like 100 150 feet up from where it was and he said he turned around to look and he said it it was then standing in the middle of the street looking at him um and like where the where the street light could actually catch it and the description that he gave me was very pudgy, pudgy wudgy like. And my brother likes this stuff, but he doesn't know his stuff on it. So like he doesn't know what a pugga wudgy is. Um, he kind of, he kind of um, 
his description was kind of in the sense of like if you've ever seen a movie called um, Cat's Eye, the Stephen King movie. Are you familiar? Uh, no. Uh, he did this movie where there was this weird gremlin thing in it, and um, he kind of pitched it more like that. And uh, then we got into like how it could have been a puggy wudgy because it was like from that area. It's around we we're like within the triangle. And I remember like he had goosebumps telling me this story. Like I definitely, and he was shooken up. Like when he got home, he told me this, and he was like shooken up. And um, I, I've never forgot how how scared he was is what made it real for me, which is the best way to kind of you know decipher what's truth or reality when somebody's telling you a story is how they react to it. You know what I mean? Well, without giving away the location, yeah. You technically are within the borders of the uh, Bridgewater Triangle, correct? Correct. Okay, there go your lights and there go other things happening. Yeah. No, I agree. I think that's why I'm so drawn to all this. <laughs> all this unknown. But uh, I'll hop back into the story because I want to do a Pukawaji episode in the future. Once we start going back to regular formatting episodes... After we go through the Massachusetts haunting thing, we'll Pugawaji would be on the table. All right. Uh, the Omni Parker House. Located in the heart of downtown Boston, across from the Boston Common, is an America's largest continuously operated hotel. The Four Diamond Omni Park House, which opened in 1855. The hotel's founder is Harvey Parker. Uh, the illustrious Mr. Parker arrived in Boston in 1826 with nothing but a pocket full of change which was a lot for back then, and uh, a penchant for hard work and lawfully entrepreneurial dreams of the restaurant, restu- yeah, restaurateur kind. He went to work immediately at the Coachman Fern, affluent socialite, biding his time until opportunity knocked. Then one of his favorite pubs went for sale and he bought it. Under his brilliant management, the restaurant became one of the most popular in the city. So popular that he decided to expand his business by adding a luxury hotel in which his diners could stay after their fine meals. It was called the Parker House until 1990s, when the Omni Hotel chain purchased it and officially changed the name to the Omni Parker House. The hotel was the official meeting place of the exclusive Saturday Club, which included the likes of Henry Wadsworth, Longfellow, uh, Charles Dickens, Charles Waldo Emerson, and Henry David Thoreau. Oliver Wendell Holmes wrote a famous poem called At Saturday Club, which made reference to the famous ghost or ghosts that haunt the hotel. One stanza says, Such guests, what famous names its records boast, whose owners wandered in the mob of ghosts. The famous guests have included nearly every president since Ulysses S. Grant, as well as John Wilkes Booth, said to have plotted his assassination of Lincoln while staying at the hotel, Judy Garland, Babe Ruth, and Madonna, to name a few. The gentleman ghost of owner Harvey Parker uh, has appeared at the foot of the bed of more than one surprise guest at the back the foot of the bed stuff, asking if they had everything they required. At that point, I would have asked for a stiff drink. Offers claim to have seen Parker's ghost wandering the halls, especially on the 10th floor, 
which wasn't even there during his lifetime. The apparition has been described as a bearded man dressed in Victoria-era clothing, which is a huge thing people talk about when they see ghosts. He appears solid for uh, only a moment before fading away. What do you think is, uh, so why why Victorian-era uh, is so prominent? You think it's just because people go to that with old t- old things or do you think that there was a during that victoria era, victorian era there was more weird things maybe occult things that people were doing that was keeping them around uh spiritualism was very big back then yeah um there are a lot of things going around at that time um my only question would be sometimes when people say oh they're victorian do they actually have the right age down when it's simply an older style of dress yeah, yeah but maybe. uh yeah, there, there's a pretty good reason why they they might uh, be coming from that era. I mean, if you're talking about the owner, well, his attachment could have been so strong that he just refused to leave the place. Mm-hmm. And if there wasn't a 10th floor, he could, like we said before, he's wandering around and he's checking it out. You know, Look what they've done to my place. Yeah. <laughs> but he's still concerned about the guest, doesn't seem to be harming him, more like he's concerned that he wants him to do well. He's just not letting go of the place. Do you think there would be negative energy from somebody plotting, like from Wilkes Booth supposedly plotting the assassination of Lincoln while staying at the hotel? Or do you think it would be, you know, something would have to have actually happened there? I think more something would actually have to have happened there. Uh, whether he did do that or not, I don't know. Or whether that's just part of the legend of it. But mm-hmm. even if he did, it was just some plotting and then he moved on. I think the high energy from the high profile people, uh, into a wide variety of things, particularly, uh, authors and artists, imagination and, uh, that history, that place being that old, it's very easy for all that energy to build up. Mm. And like I said, the owner's just not letting go. Now, do you think the owner was, when it says the owner would be seen in parts of the hotel that wasn't built when he died, usually they stick to the parts that they know, uh, but would, would you think it would still roam the entire, the entire, you know, um, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Like, <laughs> what would you say hotel to keep it simple? But you think it would, it would still roam the entire place? If the place has a reputation and some people are going to be going there too and hoping, I'm rather hoping that they do see a ghost, Mm -hmm. but that flow of people, that flow of energy going in and out of there, including the new rooms, which even though they weren't built in his time, it is attached to the building, that might just draw him uh, so that, yeah, he'll go into the new area and the old area because of that energy flow, because of the people going through there, and because he still, even with a uh, new addition, calls it his hotel. Yeah, and him showing up wanting to know if people need anything, he tells you he's a pleaser. Uh, so he probably would, kind of, if people did want to see something, I almost feel like his personality that stuck with him would probably be uh, will, more willing to show himself than a, a, a typical ghost. I agree. Yeah. Uh, on both the ninth and 10th floors, people have reported seeing orbs of white light and hearing inexplicable sounds. The th- third floor is the other active floor in the paranormal sense. One of the elevators stops at the third floor without anyone calling for it or pressing the third floor button. 
In the past, it happened so frequently that engineers were called in to inspect the elevator thoroughly, but they could find nothing wrong with it. Some believe that it's the ghost of actress Charlotte Cushman, who stayed frequently in the Dickens suite of the hotel, where she had been living. Maybe still hasn't left her favorite place, or maybe someone else is haunting the Omni's elevators. Room 303 was turned into a storage closet when it became apparent that it was very haunted. A traveling liquor salesman died in that room years ago, and some believe he's responsible for the taunting laughter heard of the, in the smell of whiskey, which would make sense, that pervaded the room before it was finally renovated. Staff members and guests alike have been ominous about uh, have seen ominous shadows on the walls and found uh, bathroom fixtures operating with no apparent assistance. But what would you expect in a place that has hosted for 150 years thousands of famous celebrities and historic visitors? It only adds to the atmosphere and authenticity, rubbing shoulders with the rich and famous of the past in posh, genuine Victorian hotel. Yeah, and a lot of those rich were very into the occult. You know, very questionable. Uh, their practices were a little uh, questionable, I'd say, at times. I'm curious that uh, I know if you go back a certain amount of time and you have an elevator, you used to have operators. Mm-hmm. And if you had an operator that spent most of their life there, yes. possibly even lived there, maybe that, what was it, room 303? yeah. Could have spent a whole, a whole, most of their life there. Maybe they never left. Maybe they're part of the haunting or why the, uh, elevator would stop on a third floor all the time. Maybe it would be curious to find out, uh, if in fact it could be done, uh, who, when that they had a, uh, elevator operator, who it was, where they passed, even, it might have even been in the hotel. It may have more than one spirit in there. It sounds like it. Yeah, and with that, with um, with the guy being such a pleaser, usually when you have a an owner or a manager that is very, very like wanting everything to be great and everybody to be treated well, he usually only accepts the best of help around him. He's he's you know um, making sure everybody loves their job and takes their job very seriously. So I go, that kind of fits in with if there was. Uh, like a like a like a elevator operator guy that was there. He probably would, and if he was living there, it, would probably, it was probably the best place to him as well. You know what I mean? Yep. All right. North America's first UFO. Row 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 your boat gently down the stream. Merrily 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 merrily, life is but a dream. That childhood nursery rhyme would would uh, could well have been written by the three men who spotted the first UFO in North America. While drifting down the muddy, I bet at first you were wondering what the fuck was going on when I started that. Um, thought I lost my mind. While drifting down the muddy river in Boston in 1638, it had been it it it, it had to have been a surreal experience for the pilgrims who had never heard of UFOs, especially when they realized they had experienced the lost time phenomenon with which today's UFO researchers are so familiar. James Everill and two friends were rowing merrily down the river one night when a large bright light appeared suddenly in the sky directly over them. 
the square, fiery object contracted onto the figure of a swine before moving swift as an arrow toward the Charleston, according to the men. They watched stunned as the light moved back and forth between Boston and Charlestown for what seemed like several hours. When it finally disappeared, the men realized that they had somehow ended up about a mile up the river uh, from where they had originally put their boat in. They had been mysteriously transported against the current, with no memory of being having rowed back upstream themselves, which would have required some conscious effort on their part. It was simply impossible. Now, I don't know, because the current's pretty strong when it wants to be, so it could have easily kind of threw them for a loop. Uh, had it not been for the credibility of the three gentlemen described as sober and discreet, as well as another individual who claimed to have seen a sim similar object on the river at about the same time. The story may have gone no further. Instead, John Winthrop, governor of Massachusetts Bay Colony, wrote of the incident in his book, The History of New England, uh, 1630 to 1639. So it went down in history as the first documented report of a UFO sighting in North America. I don't know. I mean, it could have been. It very well could have been. I feel like them think they, they, they rested a lot of that credibility on that current. And I've been in boats before where the currents can been really take you out of the way. You know what I mean? Well, if, I don't know. If the story says they went upstream instead of downstream, they would have had oh, to go okay. against the strong current. All right, then. Never mind. You're right. <laughs> You're right. I wasn't even thinking of that part of it. The other thing I'm thinking about is I know that uh, once you had Roswell and you had certain sightings, then suddenly everybody started seeing them. And yeah. uh, if you talk about the time since then, we're used to aviation we have science fiction about space travel, then trips to the moon actually did happen. And we have a lot of different things there. If you're talking about the time frame that this happened in, yeah. the culture that it happened in, uh, which was uh, strict Christian at the time, um, I'm not going to include the Native Americans because they're not part of the story. Mm -hmm. They would have had a different outlook. But um, as far as the star people go, but the uh, the people that are involved in it, they're not uh, familiar. They have no idea about air travel. Um, they look at the, as far as they're concerned, the whole universe set is centered around the Earth. Um, UFOs, extraterrestrials, that was not part of their life at the time. Whatever happened to them had to shake them up or not that they stepped out of their whole life, all of their conditioning, mm -hmm. everything, to be able to say that, it had to be something monumental that, that shook them to the core to be that unusual. It wasn't certainly wasn't mass hysteria because it was there wasn't the uh, means for communication, whether it be radio, TV, social media, etc. It was something that unexplained that really shook these people that had no clue. Uh, no conditioning to look for it, to try and recognize it. They didn't look up and say, look, a UFO. They just looked up and, you know, probably had to clean their pants out afterwards. Who knows? Probably, yeah. I mean, it, just would scare, it would scare them so much. This was 1638, too, before there was airplanes or anything. 
Yeah, so it's and the culture at the time, and this had to be something that for them to put their whole reputation on the line mm. and put that out there, it had to be major and scare them. You've seen those famous paintings from way, way, way back where they have like kings and rulers and stuff like that and queens in portraits, and then in the distance you see weird aircrafts in the sky. I've seen that. Um, I've got mixed feelings about that, yeah. whether it's simply a bad artist trying to put a bird up there or someone putting in, interpreting what they want and putting it in the sky, what they want people to see because they have their own uh, kind of point of view or agenda. I'm a little bit mixed on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of that weird stuff in the background, so to speak, those paintings, mm-hmm. I'm not too sure. Yeah. You know, not to go with this story, but um, do you think way, you know, because of the, the, you know, it was fiery red, seen fiery red square and stuff, but do you think way back that when um, people might have thought of constellations as a UFO type situation, maybe with those portraits or something, because when you think about the, the stars, like with those, some of those constellations, like Orion's belt and stuff, they're like, th- those stars are placed in like perfect straight lines, you know what I mean? I'm sure that they could have thought a lot, uh, interpreted it a lot of different ways and what they didn't understand. Um, part of a, one of the, uh, in Orion's belt, there is also a double star, I think mm-hmm. it's in the belt, that a uh, simple pair of uh, binoculars, you can distinguish them. Uh, there are galaxies that... Uh, actually appear as large stars. The planets, particularly if they line up a particular uh, in a certain way, would uh, make people wonder what is going on. Never mind if you get into comets. That would really blow their mind across the heavens yeah. and how they would portray that. Um, you also have to take a look at sometimes in the portrayal of a lot of these different things. Um, if someone is, let's say, a little bit of a visionary, uh, someone who is looking ahead, they may actually notice these things more because they look up, not always down, mm-hmm. and they're going to put them out there. And since they couldn't do it with videos and they couldn't do it with uh, photographs, they would do it in paintings. Yeah. Real quickly, a side question. Are you familiar with, like, Wormwood or Planet X? You ever get into that stuff? Uh, no. Uh, it's like a, it's like the comet that's supposed to kill us all. Nebula, something like that. Um, weird stuff. Um, I I feel, I feel like the end of humanity will kind of be a comet. I don't know if we ever talked about that, because even in the Bible, when you go into the Bible, um, I want to say the Bible says something about the end of the earth and how its mountains on fire. Are you familiar with that? Uh, a long time ago, can't recall much. Which, which, if you were I, when I think about it, and I think of a mountain on fire, that's that's a comet. I mean, that that it's got to be. You know what I mean? It just makes sense. It's literally like literally when you think about it, a mountain on fire is literally a comet. You know, a big rock on fire coming towards the earth. But we'll save that for another day, you know. Um, Our next episode, I mean, our next story, rather, is 
Central Burying Ground. There's more to Boston Common Central Burying Ground on the south side than what meets the eye. And I'm not just talking about the spirits that most certainly inhabit the land. You would never know that the dead are buried far beyond the scope of the areas designated as the Central Burying Ground. In fact, nearly all of the common 48 acres hold corpses from colonial times. Um, when the undesirables of society were executed and buried, uh, buried there with no stones to mark their remains. That may be why it's so hard to identify the little girl who tried to befriend Dr. Matt Rudger in the 1970s. While the good dentist was visiting the cemetery, he later said he felt someone tap his shoulder several times, and then he felt a tug on his collar from behind. Clearly someone wanted his attention, but he was alone, or so he thought. At that moment, his awareness was drawn to a rear corner of the cemetery where he saw something move out of the corner of his eye. It was a young girl wearing a soiled, oversized white dress. Long auburn hair framed her gaunt, ashen face, and something about her just wasn't right, or real. The dentist turned to run towards the front gate, as I would, but he stopped in his tracks when he realized that the source of his fear had suddenly appeared in front of the gate, where she should uh, she stood staring solemnly at him. For several minutes, he watched the young spirit relocate instantly to various areas of the cemetery, as if showing off an impressive newfound ability. Overcoming his initial apprehension, the dentist took a daring step toward the child. That's when he confirmed what he had already begun to suspect. She wasn't solid. The closer he got, the more she faded until she had finally disappeared altogether as the dentist continued on his way to his cart. He reached into his pocket for his keys. That's when he felt a small, icy hand next to his own. Uh, and he watched dumbfounded as his keys drifted up into the air hovered momentarily and then dropped to the ground. It was his last interaction with the young girl, but it was more than enough to turn a non-believer into a believer. Um, very creepy stuff with the little kid. Um, do you think that it was, do you think that that could have been almost demon form? Or do you think, because when it said that the, 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 the soiled, in a soiled dress, I almost feel like it would it wouldn't come back. It's almost like it was kind of like going leading you to believe that she came out of the grave. Where I think if a if a spirit was going to show you itself, it wouldn't be in you know dirty clothes unless maybe you know maybe she was murdered and when they found her she was in a soiled dress from being you know in the dirt and the mud and stuff. What's your take? Well, I would agree. I mean, if the spirit wants to show how they died, and let's say they were murdered and put in the ground, then they would they would come back uh, looking that way. Right. Most spirits would probably most spirits, at least from all reports, they present themselves very well. They're dressed in what they most often were known in. Um, they're not trashed, so to speak. Right. So if you're looking at the little girl, it's either a presentation of what happened to her or it's something else presenting as the girl that wants to lure someone in. Yeah. 
That was my take on it. Um, and the fact that it, like, almost... When he was trying to get out of there, it, it jumped to in front of him to kind of keep him within there. Do you think there was something almost villainous about that? Or do you think it was just a make sure you see me, like you need to see me type deal and, you know, bring up the idea? You know, I probably feel like the girl was murdered, you know what I mean? And that's why the clothes were torn and by, you know, maybe she was like, see me. Make sure you see me. No, I'm not just your imagination. I'm here. You're looking at me again. I'm now in your path again to just to, to make light of, you know, don't forget about me. And, you know, maybe the fact, the way she she showed herself was because she was murdered. Well, there was a definite uh, tone to that uh-huh. as far as... Uh, her going when he goes when he goes to leave showing again saying i'm real i'm here and there had to be a message behind that why and the message like you said may have been the way she was dressed looking like she had been murdered and just put into the ground yeah yeah it's crazy scary uh there's nothing more scarier i feel than kids whenever you see kids dead kids and it was it was it, she was taking the form of scariness because she had the gaunt face you know what i mean it wasn't like she was appearing herself when she was alive and somewhat well as we would assume you know somewhat well who knows she could have had a life of abuse and was bruised all the time and sickly you know what i mean but you know showing herself in that way uh makes me kind of wonder about the situation a little bit well, the flip side is that uh, if it wasn't the girl, it was something else teasing them yeah. and something else playing with them, hoping that they could trap them. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, our next story up is a story called The Resurrection. I don't think this will be The Resurrection of Christ. I think this will be something else. Um. Ephraim Gray was an eccentric recluse who lived in the suburb of Malden. In the mid-1800s, along with his faithful companion, a servant who kept Ephraim's house and his secrets. Though Ephraim was rarely seen on the street, he was often smelled. Uh, That is, a strong chemical-like odor often drifted from his house onto the street. He was cooking methamphetamines in in his house in the 1800s. (laughs) Um, causing passerbys to wonder aloud what he was doing in there. They could see his silhouette through the shades in the upstairs window, but nobody could discern what covert activities the old hermit was up to, and his servant was sworn sworn to secrecy. The townspeople were left with an inquiring mind for years, but the truth was finally revealed one day in 1850 when Ephraim's servant walked into the police department and reported that his friend and employer had died by natural means during the night. The loyal servant then told local mortician that Ephraim's body was not to be tampered with in any way except to place it into his crypt in the Malden Cemetery. He went on to explain that Gray, a self-taught chemist, had been working on a secret chemical concoction that would halt aging and ensure his immortality. He hadn't perfected the elixir at the time of his death, but he had taken enough of the substance over the years to at least ensure that his corpse would remain unaffected by natural decay process. 
Besides, the servant was the sole heir to Ephraim's estate, but only on the condition that he was he made sure Ephraim's body went straight from his home to his team with no stops in between for unusual preparation for usual preparation and disposal of corpses, which is uh, very questionable right there. You know what I mean? Uh, his wishes were granted. No recipe for the secret elixir was ever found in the home. The men shared even after the servant passed away several years later. Both apparently took the secret formula, if there truly was one, but their graves, to their graves. But Ephraim may have managed to put the finishing touches on his potion from the great beyond, because somehow, as the legend goes, he rose or was taken from the grave between 1850 in the early 1900s. A young man from Malden told a group of curious Harvard students that Ephraim Gray's strange experiment, and they couldn't resist visiting his grave 20 years after Gray was buried to see if his body had indeed avoided decay. Imagine their surprise when they pried open the casket and found the body of not just good, but perfect condition, completely unaffected by the years. It looked as if he were still alive. Their curiosity satisfied, they quickly sealed the casket back up securely, or so they later claimed, and agreed to tell nobody of their findings, because it, if their grave tampering activities were discovered, they would be kicked out of medical school, or worse. Luckily for them, their secret was safe until many years later when they had all become successful middle-aged physicians. In the early 20th century, the highway department needed to move Malden Cemetery to a new location to make way for a road that would go straight through the burial ground. When they got to Gray's crypt, they found his coffin to be unusually light, so they opened it up and discovered that it was completely empty. That was when word leaked out about the young medical student's visit to the crypt. But all of the men involved uh, vehemently insisted they had not removed the body and had, in fact, resealed the coffin with the utmost care. Nobody has ever figured out how Gray's body got out of his tomb. Had he perfected his portion on the other side of actually returning to life? A modern-day resurrection? If so, does he still walk among us mere mortals, never to age or die? Or perhaps more plausibly, was his body carefully removed, studied, and disposed of in the name of science and medicine? We may never know. Ephraim Gray's life and death remain shrouded in mystery. Well, my take on that is his servant killed him and got his estate, and that's why he told people that he didn't want to be autopsied and didn't want anything. He just wanted to be put in the ground. Uh, maybe after that, the servant, you, you have that take or you have the take of, um, a big, of him, them all faking his death. So he would look like a genius, you know what I mean? And maybe place a body in the casket that was looked very much like a person, but was maybe mannequin like or fake. You know what I mean? Um, just so that so he would so he would continue to be this genius scientist type dude, and or um, when these people opened it up, I feel like um, I don't think that they could have kept that secret. I could definitely see them not going public with it, but I could definitely I don't see them hold, keeping that secret around 
having a few drinks around the campus, I could I couldn't you know what I mean. And with that being said, I feel like it's quite possible that somebody else might have went in there and took the body to try and figure out something with with, with how that was possible. Because yeah, doctors and scientists would love to find out something that was a de-aging or, or make you not get older. You know what I mean? What's your take on yeah. that? Um, I think there's a pretty good chance that the servant did something uh, to him mm-hmm. and was trying to hide it yeah. with the no no autopsy thing, uh, no preparation. Mm-hmm. Definitely, I, I, I think that's probably at the top of my list. Yeah. The body... Uh, I would say that the body disappearing, well, I would tend to go with the medical students who once they had gotten in there, no matter what they discovered, they had gone that far. They took the body to experiment and try and see what was going on with this legendary immortal body, whether they found it uh, near new condition or not, mm-hmm. uh, or near mint condition, so to speak. Uh, or not, they would be curious and they would have to hide that. And if anybody ever found anything out, if it was long enough afterwards, well, that just fits the old legend. Well, look at that. Well, he was perfect when we went in there. Right. Uh, gee, uh, I don't know what happened there. <laughs> yeah. But I think it was basically the medical students doing a body steal and the, the servant basically hastening his death, whether the guy was sick or whether he just... Uh, Killed him, poisoned him. Yeah, because like, uh, why? Why would if you were if you were the students, and the body went missing, why would you then tell the story about how you didn't? Why would you put yourself in the situation of saying, "Hey, well, we, we were there, but we left the body there." That was probably something only done out of fear of them finding evidence or fingerprints. You know what I mean? Evidence, fingerprints, or maybe a few buddies they told uh, over mm-hmm. drinks shortly afterwards um, that knew they went there and took the body, so they're now trying to cover so nobody uh, catches them. Yeah. Nobody's at fault. Yeah. I definitely believe that, yeah. Our next story is, let's see here, uh, The Old Powder House. The old powder house at Nathan Tufts Park in Somerville was built in 1704 by shipwright Jean Malay, but today it's owned by the city of Somerville and operated under the uh, auspices of the Historic Preservation Commission. The round stone tower, which was originally built at the windmill as a windmill, had a long and colorful history and the ghost story to boot. In 1747, the Mallets sold their, their stone mill to the Providence of Massachusetts to use for gunpowder storage. That was when it became known as the Powder House, an important munitions depot during the American Revolution. But in 1818, the state began storing gunpowder at the other locations and sold the property to a farmer named Peter Tufts, whose son and descendants became prominent citizens of the city, during the 1800s. In fact, the park was named for Peter's son, Nathan, founder of Nathan Tufts and Sons. And Nathan's uncle Charles Tufts is the namesake of the nearby Tufts University. In 1870s, George Emerson purchased the powder house in which the store is locally 
the store's locally popular Emerson's Old Powder House brand pickles. By 1972, the Powder House had earned a reputation as the oldest stone building in Massachusetts and was featured on Somerville's New City Seal uh, in honor of the city's 100th birthday. A few years later, the park was listed on National Register of Historic Places and in 1985, it was designated as a local historic district. The old Powder House was damaged by fire in 1999. But the city quickly restored it. After all, it's the park's most significant historic feature and conversation piece. You see, somewhere along the line, a legend was born. According to legend, something so unfortunate happened in the Mills Loft many years ago that it left the permanent imprint in the atmosphere. One version of the story tells of a young woman disguised as a man who sought refugees in the loft one night, but somehow a man who was up to no good discovered that she was actually a woman and tried to molest her. In the process, he became entangled in the mill's machinery and died. His restless spirit is said to still haunt the powder house today. The other version is perhaps more accurate, if only because it was told closer to the date of the alleged incident. According to Charles Skinner, in Myths and Legends of Our Own Land, it was a young woman's beloved father who died after an injury in the tower. And he is the one who haunted it, and many still haunt it today. The account follows. The old powder house, as the round stone tower is called, that stands on the gravel ridge in Somerville, is so named because at the outbreak of the Revolutionary War, it was used temporarily as a magazine. Uh, But long before that, it was a windmill. Uh, Here in the old days, two lovers held their tryst a sturdy and honest young farmer at the neighborhood and the daughter of a man whose wealth puffed him with purse pride. It was the plebeian state of the farmer that made him look at him with an unfavorable countenance. And when it was whispered to him that the young people were meeting each each other almost every evening in the mill, he resolved to surprise them there and humiliate. If he did not punish them... From the shadow of the door, they saw his approach, and yielding the girl's imploring, the lover secreted himself while she climbed to the loft. The flutter of her dress caught the old man's eye, and he hastened panting into the mill. For some moments he groped about, for his eyes had not grown used to the darkness of the place, and hearing his muttered oaths, the girls crept backward from the stair. She was beginning to hope that she had not been seen when her foot caught a loosened board and she stumbled. But in her fall, she threw out her hand to save herself and found a rope within her grasp directly uh, that her her weight had been applied to it. There was a a wire and a clank. Uh, The cord had set the great fans in motion at the same moment. A fall was heard, then a cry passing from anger into anguish. She rushed down the stair, and Lover appeared from his hiding place at the same moment, and together they dragged the old man to his feet. At the moment when the wind had started the sails, he had been standing on one of the millstones, and the sudden jerk had thrown him down. His arm caught between the grinding surfaces and had been crushed to a pulp. He was carried home and tenderly nursed, but he did not live long. Yet before he died, he was made to see the folly of his course, and he consented to the marriage that it had cost him so dear to his prevent. 
try to prevent before she can summon summon heart to fix the wedding day the girl passed many months of grief and repentance and for the rest of her life she avoided the old mill there was a good reason for doing so people said for on windy nights the spirit of the old man used to haunt the place using such profanity that it became visible in the form of blue lights dancing and exploding about the building what's your opinion on that one I would tend to say that uh, I'd go with the old man. Yeah. I would say there would probably be other spirits because if you had a windmill and you were grinding and then later a powder house, you had accidents and yeah. you had people die there. Mm-hmm. And they would have been a gru- there would have been a gruesome death. So would there be spirits in there? I'd say there's a definite possibility. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah, that one was that's an interesting one. It wasn't it wasn't too juicy of a story, but uh, I agree with you that multiple things have happened in there, and you know, because of his because his even though he didn't die there, but his his wound his fatal wound was had there. You think that would still tie him back to that place? Um, I think so. He had an attachment to it, and yeah. I think that that's where the fatal wound was was delivered. That's where he'd go back to. That's also where he was um, emotionally searching for the girl. So, yeah, there was an attachment there, something to draw him back. Yeah. All right, our, our final story of uh, this episode, uh, Blessed Mother Apparition. The Virgin Mary has made divine appearances known as Marian apparitions around the world since the time of her death. Often such apparitions are preceded by or occur simultaneously with enigmatic images of religious nature. These have included apparitions of angels, heavenly cloud formations, and strange weather phenomena like that experienced by Jesus on the cross. The mysterious appearance of doorways, presumably to heaven, and inexplicable cross formations, for example, when the Blessed Mother made her remarkable appearance in a window on the third floor of Milton Hospital in 2003, Scores of witnesses observed the distinct cross of the hospital's chimney at the same time, but nothing could go complete without the crystal clear image in the window's glass of the Madonna uh, cradling the Christ child. Uh, Word of the sighting spread so quickly when it first appeared in June 2003 that the hospital administrator was forced to seek assistance from the Archdiocese of Boston, on which to proceed with such a holy vision and deal with crowds which measured easily into the thousands. Out of respect for the patients and nearby residents, those wishing to view the holy image in the windows, were asked to visit only between 5.30 and 8.30 p.m. Hospital officials purportedly told the Boston Globe that the image was nothing but a chemical deposit inside the window, and others said it was condensation between the two panels of glass. Perhaps the chemical deposition of the condensation was divinely placed Unfortunately, the window planes were in an accessible location that hindered further investigation. But even skeptics agree that whatever it was bore a remarkable, if not downright uncanny resemblance to the Virgin Mary and child. It was certainly beautiful by all accounts. If you're still not sure, someone upstairs uh, was or is watching over Milton and the surrounding greater Boston area. Another blessed Virgin Mary incident occurred on the opposite side of the Boston in the town of Medford in March 2004. In that case, a statue of the Blessed Mother outside of Sacred Heart Church was seen crying. 
the church was set to close soon. Uh, and one theory was that Ma- Mary's tears were related to the closing of that church and others to the current scandal rocking the Catholic Church. Um, who's to say that... Uh, no, does anybody actually know what Mary, the Virgin Mary looks like, or is it just kind of what they take from these paintings and, you know, interpretations? I would say what they take from the paintings and interpretation. Uh, as far as knowing, no one can know exactly. Yeah. Um... I'm a little disappointed. I think that it was more a case of people not wanting to uh, investigate further when they said that the window was inaccessible. Um, I think they were trying to hide something there Mm -hmm. because it would have been easy enough to go up and clean the window and see if it came back. To me, it's more like that is to use the word cover-up in that they don't want people to go up there. Maybe they had tried to clean it. They couldn't get rid of the image. So they're saying, no, 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 it's out of reach. We can't get it. Um, I'm a little suspicious as to how the hospital handled that one. Yeah. Uh, the statue with the church closing and church problems. Um, yeah, I would tend to say that that one is uh, kind of straightforward. Yeah. What's your take in general on all the, all the, when people think they see Christ in like potato chips and toast? You know what I mean? And all, you know, they see other people like Elvis and stuff like that too, but you hear a lot of religious things. What's your take on people seeing, you know, in water stains on the wall from like water damage and stuff to kind of take the face of Christ? What's your take on that? I think a lot of time, times, uh, depending upon the emotional state of the people, it's what they want to see. Yeah, I agree. Um, if you're talking about, you know, your breakfast toast or a leaky pipe and a stain that it leaves on the wall, um, I kind of question that a bit. It's like abstract with, art, you know. With I mean? that, I do say, is it possible for people to have visitations or to people to be able to see? I would say yes. Mm-hmm. But some of the situations, to me, uh, they're a little doubtful. What's your take on stigmata? Um, well, if you go back to Padre Pio, that's a case of, uh, that's really your ultimate case right there. I think it is possible. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. And we could do an episode on that. And let's, that kind of goes back to that, the one we were talking about, that possession um, story, I think in the previous episode, um, with the blood, with the body bleeding and stuff, you know what I mean? Um, do you think it, do you think there's a possibility that it's not people always think of stigmata, I think as like a positive thing where you're feeling Christ's pain, but do you ever think that that might be a form of possession in a way where it's may, you know, maybe if you're being, you're being punished for believing, uh, and maybe you get possessed by something negative and it makes you feel the pain that Jesus felt. I don't think so, because it tends to all those that have gone through it mm. tend to have been very, um, what you would classify as pious people, uh, good people, people that have uh, tried to help others. I don't see where there could be something negative attached. Well, they could be attacked, right? You feel good people could be attacked, you know, if they're, they let their guard down or whatever, they could be attacked? If they were attacked, I think it would be foolish of whatever is attacking them 
to use something which signifies something holy. Hmm. I mean, it's that's kind of sabotaging yourself in the attack. Yeah, I guess so. I figured because it was pain, they feel they feel the burning. It's, if I remember correctly, it's burning sensation in their palms and it bleeds like that. It's not like a. It's not like uh, speaking in tongues and, you know, being with the Lord. Um, good feeling, you know, it's kind of a bad feeling of feeling his pain and what he went through. So I I would, I'd kind of question, you know, I don't know for sure, but I would, I would be open to the idea of it, it not exactly being a positive thing, you know what I mean? But who am I? Who am I? You know what I mean? <laughs> well, the, but- when I when I say a positive thing, yeah. I mean it is obviously uh, pain for those enduring it. Right. But at the same time, why would something evil give you that pain, which is going to inspire so many people to turn against evil? Well, I look to, at to me. Yeah. There's a there's a there's a revert. There's a no logic to it. But you would get you would it would be kind of like a possession pain too, don't you think? And like. You take a possession situation like that other story, and even though it happened, very few people will believe that it's real, much like a stigmata situation where even though it happened, many people would think that it was fake. You know what I mean? Somehow the trickery of, of, of you know, magic or something. Uh, some people may believe that way, but I think that uh, for a long while in current society and going back a ways, there's enough uh, ways to examine it medically. Mm-hmm. to be able to determine whether it's fake or not. And if it's not fake, then whatever is evil really just sunk their cause because it's now become an inspiration for the opposite. Yeah. I, it's, I think it's interesting because it's almost like, and I know that it, if it was a demon, so to speak, that it wouldn't want to be and do anything Christ-like, but if it was mocking it, you know, and bringing pain, I feel like that could be possession type deal. You know what I mean? But I can definitely see both sides of it where why why would it do something so Christ-like when the mere mention of Christ's name would scare it or hurt it? You know what I mean? And then on the flip side, why would it do that? You know, with that, but then on the flip side of like it wanting to mock the, the whole situation as well as attack somebody who, well, you're a believer, so, you know, here you go, here's a dose of this, deal with that type deal, you know? Well, that it becomes a case if it if it is something evil doing that, then once again it's lost a battle there. It set itself up by doing something stupid. Yeah, uh, it's you know, and evil quite often is stupid. Yeah, but it's not really intelligent. Uh, so it does something which has the reverse effect. Yeah, and pays the price for it. Truth. I'm with you. I'm with you. All right, that was our final story of the episode. We're rounding out in a big hour and 30 minutes and 36 seconds, kid. That was a uh, that was a good one. When we return, we'll be back into the South Shores, uh, southern Massachusetts. And I think we have two more areas left. And that we'll be wrapping up our, uh, our journey into Haunted, Massachusetts. So thanks, everybody out there, for listening. Thank you, Ray, for being a part of being a part of the show yet again. Always my pleasure. Always good times. Everybody, be safe over there, and me and Ray will catch you on the next episode of Mostly Ghostly.